Welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast, a podcast incorporating narratives about facing and navigating adversity, a mixture of people, their experiences and professional psychological discussion. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo. I'm a qualified and regulated psychologist with over 20 years experience of mental health, disability and human behaviour. I want to share people's stories of navigating adversity in the hope that through being heard, a dose of compassion and some understanding, we can help others in the face of adversity too. Hi and welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo and we have returning guest again. So you've been on twice before, it's Dr. Stuart Sadler. Do you want to say hi, tell us a little bit about who you are for those who don't already know? Yeah, hello there. Um, I'm Stuart Sadler. I'm a clinical psychologist and sleep specialist based in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Um, so I tend to work predominantly with depression, anxiety and sleep disorders. And um, people can probably listen to your previous podcast to find out why those three tend to um, work together. Um, but yeah, it's lovely to be back. It's always a pleasure to talk to your audience. We love having you on. I love having you on. Um, so for people, we will put this in the show notes as well. But if you want to listen to Stuart's other podcast episodes with me, so series one, episode three, we discussed sleep, didn't we? Um, and then in series four, episode six, we discussed anxiety. And let's start with that then. You named it the kind of triad. So today we're bringing in the third bit, aren't we? Depression. Tell us a little bit about why we're talking about this triad, what it is. Yeah, so it's a really good question. And quite often, we tend to think of difficulties as I'm suffering from anxiety, or I'm suffering from depression, or I'm suffering from OCD. But when we look at the grander scale of it, you know, we only have one brain, and it all goes into that same brain. So there's often a kind of overlap into other areas. And yeah. uh, you know, whichever comes first, we know that depression, anxiety um, and sleep problems, they tend to often sit together, along with other yeah. things as well. But yeah. we know that those three tend to sit together quite a lot. If someone has trouble with their sleep, then it becomes harder to regulate the emotions the next day. So absolutely, more vulnerability to anxiety or more vulnerability to depression if people are having trouble with depression, we know that there are circadian rhythm problems with that that might affect their sleep. We know that anxiety and depression are very closely linked, um, you know, through various mechanisms, which I'm sure we'll probably end up talking about today. So when we think about I'm suffering from X, quite often there might be traces of Y and Z there as well. So it's yes. quite useful to think about what else is maybe going on for me? And that helps us put together a more complete therapy package or more complete approach where we can look at everything that's happening. So we're coming at it from a lot of multiple directions. And I think this is something important. So I'm going to bring this in as we're both psychologists that that formulation, as we call it, is really important. And that doesn't always happen for people and them being supported to understand and put together a picture of what's happening. And quite often people might say, oh, I have depression or anxiety or sleep problems, but it might be seen as a standalone issue. And the importance of help people look at the interaction between those things. And for me, that actually can create quite a core shift in symptoms. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I think that that's really a really important point. And 
even though I'm a psychologist, I often do find myself, you know, referring to depression, referring to anxiety and so on, even though they're diagnostic labels, because I think that they are helpful to have an idea. Yeah. But it doesn't really tell us why that person has depression. It doesn't really tell us what's keeping it going or what triggered it. It doesn't really tell us about what they may be doing that stops it getting worse. You know, those protective facts, right? And symptoms can be very different, you know, even in the DSM, which is the the kind of diagnostic checklist, if you like, that's often used to um, identify what condition, if you want to call it that, what might be suffering from. You can have two people with depression and there might be and often is different symptoms, just like there is for anxiety and, you know, there is for a lot of things. I know we covered it previously, but insomnia, people think of insomnia as just trouble falling asleep. But we know that waking up during the night is also insomnia. So giving it these broad labels, it's quite helpful to give a general idea, but it doesn't really tell us about the actual experience that the person is having or what in their lifestyle has contributed to it so many important points there and because there is some controversy let's label that as well um around the use of kind of diagnostics so as we say it's super important to discuss with patients how they feel about using labels diagnostics sometimes it can be useful to have a framework i personally do find it useful in my work to have something to refer to but as you say it has to be meaningful yeah. We need to help people understand what's going on. So when we think of something like depression, and I also will urge people to go back and listen, I think in order as well, actually, if you listen to the sleep episode and then the anxiety, because they flew, flow together, and then um, it will help you kind of form a picture of what this triad is. If we're talking about depression, then, so I have covered depression before, but from the perspectives, I've lovely Dr. Emma Cottrell on, um, who authored a book around how to support someone with depression but we haven't actually talked about depression in itself so for somebody listening how do we characterize depression let's go right back to basics then what is it how may it present so depression it's one of those things that everyone kind of has an idea what it is but um, I mean really clinically depression it's when there's a persistent low mood and there tends to be other symptoms like changes in appetite changes in sleep there might be fatigue yeah. or difficulty concentrating and there often tends to be a pattern of reduced behavior and yeah. um, and we can talk about you know the different theories about why that occurs yeah. um, but also as well these these um, negative cognitions, these ruminative ones that tend to be kind of quite self-critical yeah. or they tend to be related to our worth as a person. Yeah. Um, so there's different types of depression too, right? Obviously, there's, what we refer to as depression is often in the manuals called major depressive disorder, but there's also right. things like persistent depressive disorder, um, cyclothymia, seasonal affective disorder, bipolar, um, postpartum depression. Um, yes, that's important. You know, there's lots of different types that, that are different as well and have different causes, different symptoms, and really need to be handled differently, like even, even by psychologists. Yes, absolutely. I think that in itself is important because, as you say, it was a really important thing to say that people might have an idea of what it is but it's really important I think to kind of deconstruct a there's different types so read up about those learn but also that the intervention might be different 
for them as well um, and kind of relating back to the podcast I did before and supporting someone with depression that's quite important I think for people to understand who may live with someone or mm-hmm. are supporting somebody um, or even if you're noticing somebody in the workplace for example that you think may be struggling because it's not always obvious and I think from personal experience I've noticed I've had friends who you would not know you know that are outside that kind of realm of maybe thinking about not look after yourself you know there's kind of older school models you know maybe not presenting yourself so well maybe looking a bit more unkempt that isn't always the way is it that some people can be perfectly presented may really look like they've got everything together but are really struggling is that something you think might be useful for us to talk about yeah absolutely because i think it's something that is one of the big things that does prevent people from getting help as well um that whole idea about i should be able to do it and so many people i see you know there's kind of two levels to their depression Um, again i know i'm using the label there but there's two levels to it there's the actual things that are going on that are causing the problems like these self-critical cognitions if they've withdrawn or big life change but then there's the type two stuff as well which is their response to what what they're feeling so people might be having thoughts about people don't like me i'm no good i'm a failure but then on top of that having thoughts like I shouldn't be thinking this. Why am I responding to it like this? I should be able to deal with it. So it becomes a bit more like an onion, you know. Yeah, it's a good, it's good metaphor. Great. Yeah. Um, and, and with that, I think it's something that often isn't really considered so much um, yeah. in depression. Um, you mentioned about how to support someone with it. And anyone who has supported anyone with depression will be able to say and we'll probably know really well that that just telling them you know it's okay things are fine that 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 doesn't that you know people don't they don't really believe that you know they still feel depressed um but those self-critical cognitions are a really important part of it and the response or the way that we think about the people around us can also contribute to it as well people that we think we might be letting down or people that we think we will be judging us if they know yes. that there's depression yeah. right? those conversations are the ones that need blowing wide open i sometimes refer to it as the inner critic that rocks up and says you're not doing well this is what other people think of you and it can be a bit of a vicious circle can't it then when you're noticing that and you've brought in before what we call kind of like the behavioral responses things that we might see people do or not do if they're withdrawing is that something you'd be comfortable talking about as well so when people might be noticing these cognitions how might people respond is there anything we may notice yeah so with depression there's often quite a big behavioral response yeah. And um, I know, obviously, like in the textbooks, it talks about withdrawal. It talks about pulling back. It talks about um, going more internal and more ruminative, yes. which is basically just, you know, dwelling on these negative thoughts, which, which do occur. But I think what's often missing when we read articles or when we look at, um, you know, diagnostic guides is also as well that we've got this wonderful brain that can come up with solving problems yeah and one way of solving a problem can be about acting as if and quite often people with depression a bit like you suggested earlier 
it can be hard to tell because they might often overcompensate or swing to the opposite extreme and yes, look like they're the happiest person around and that they're dealing with everything. Yeah. So it can be really hard to tell. I don't think anyone can blame anyone or blame themselves even for not spotting it in people. Um, but that does make it much more difficult to know. And then for the individual, the feedback they get, if I if I present as though nothing's wrong, everyone seems happy with that and they like me. You know, it yeah. reinforces it. Um, Absolutely. I guess it's important to recognise that we never, even as psychologists, right, we can't see what's going on in people's heads and we don't really see what's going on in people's own homes as well. But I think as a society and as a culture, we've kind of lost that, um, I don't want to say an interest, but we've certainly lost that behaviour of trying to connect with people. Yes. Asking a genuine, how are you has become a greeting rather than a genuine question, right? It absolutely has. Do you know what? I'm so glad you said that because I've noticed school pass always a really good example of that. <laughs> it's all right to share that people quite often are still walking when they're saying that. People are not stopping, you know, in the moment. How are you? And wanting or waiting for a response are they able to respond to it if it comes and I've just I was going to ask you today actually whether you think has you noticed a shift since the pandemic in this um that's a really good question um I think that so our mood it often reflects or not reflects sorry it often responds to what's yeah. going on in a broader society so quite often when there's things like right now where there's a cost of living crisis going on yeah. when there's the pandemic, yeah. usually we see spikes in anxiety. And usually, you know, when um, there's um, when there's difficulties that we can't um, rise to or we can't really do anything about, then we usually see low mood because that's part of what can create low mood, that feeling of lack yeah. of control or, or learned helplessness. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so I think that kind of what has happened, um, I think what happened during the pandemic is that a lot of people were able to pause and take stock of what was going on. Yeah. And some people made some quite big life changes as well during the pandemic. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's, that, I mean, for, for a lot of people, it's worked out great, some of those changes. Um, I think since the pandemic, what we have seen a lot of is struggling to get back into their everyday life. Yes. Um, we are creatures of habit, right? You know, we tend to adapt quite quickly and sometimes quite rigidly. So even though at the time everyone really disliked and hated that they could only go out for a certain amount yeah. of time, they, it became a bit of a thing where we became quite insular and, um, you know, all of a sudden there was a genuine threat from other people. Yeah. <laughs> so we retreated into the safety of our own homes and we started working from home. We started exercising at home and we started getting food delivered from home where the delivery yeah. man is a two metre difference, uh, distance. Sorry. And for a lot of people, straight after the pandemic, what we saw was a difficult way of adapting back in the sense that they'd engineered their lifestyle so that they didn't really need to go out anymore, be around people. And they were managing, you know, if you look at measures of 
productivity or achievement, they were still getting stuff done. But it wasn't really good for us. And I think as social beings, we do need that connection. Um, It's really important um, about how we interact with others. Um, And often as well, I imagine you see it too, that that's, that's one of the areas that is often lacking when there is depression. Yes. Um, loneliness I've covered a couple of times on the on the podcast um I cover it a lot in my community work that I do it's a thing that's not I don't think talked about enough in the media of the backside of the pandemic but how that relates to depression so you know when we're thinking about the pandemic cost of living crisis we've had so much happen in the world you know it's the anniversary of the queen passing away we had the war in Ukraine it's just been relentless you know thing after thing how that may be affecting the mood of people, how that may be leading to behaviours that might be yeah. productive or counterproductive at times. Yeah. Well, we do a thing called stacking, don't we, where we build and stack previous experiences. So like you said, we've been through quite a lot recently. Yeah. Sounds quite and, a lot. Just uh, saying it then, I'm like, really? We've done all of that in the last <laughs> couple of years? It's quite remarkable. Yeah. And we tend to remember things that have like a high emotional content. So we we don't really remember um, getting out of bed and having a shower on the 4th of February. You know, you ask people where they were on 9-11, they'll be able to tell you, right? But ask them where they were on the 10th of September, they, you know, they won't remember that. Or the 8th of September, they don't remember that. So we tend to remember things that have got this high emotional um, focus if you like. And when we tend to stack experiences like that, then we get into this viewpoint of feeling like life can be just a series of negative experiences and difficult times, which which it can be. Um, But when we already have either a negative bias to our thinking or want to on that slippery slope, then those stacked experiences just tend to pile up and pile up and pile up. We don't don't really focus on gratitude so much. I know it's becoming a big thing in psychology, and we can talk about that later too. But like gratitude as the antidote to depression, if you like, because we do tend to carry with us a lot of negative experiences. And But if you think about it, you know, one of the evolutionary theories of depression is that it's a withdrawal so that we can solve this problem and then come back out and fix yes. it. Yeah. Um, so there's some it, logic just, in it, isn't there, in a way? Really? And I often think that's quite useful for people that we work with to kind of understand as well. It can help with the kind of, I'm not doing things right, or why is this happening to me? And sometimes explaining yeah. those processes can help. Yeah, and I think it puts a lot of mental health difficulties into context when we think about our brain, it's there to help us to survive. It hasn't, or or that threat system part of the brain, it's there to help us survive, you know, and it would perfectly happy us, it'd be perfectly happy for us to sit in a white room with no doors or windows if we were safe because it's done its job we're still alive it doesn't really care about our quality of life in that way so its first priority is survival and um because of that if you think about it all the evolutionary advantages in spotting threats spotting danger spotting negativity there's very little if any survival value in everything is going well right now it's all in where's the danger where's the threats 
So when we're already primed for that, we're already fighting against millions of years of programming, if you like. Absolutely. So our default state isn't happiness. Our default state is anxiety and, you know, is negativity. We have to actually work at happiness. And I think this is something else that we tend to forget. We look for something that's going to take away the depression. But we lose sight of actually it's what we do that takes away the depression. We have to work for happiness. It's not Absolutely. a given. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's sometimes where people fall into traps again, I think, with some of these quick fixes that you see on social media or some self-help books. They're not useful in that way because they're not explaining, you know. And I think sometimes, it's all right to say, some of that adds to the, I'm not doing this right, you know, because people have literally been told the wrong thing. Um, I yeah, think that's why in our job psychoeducation is so important it's an important part of helping people understand what's going on for them yeah and it's really understandable why they would do that right it's like yeah you know would you would you rather have you know six to 12 weeks of therapy or would you rather just buy this crystal or go have a cold <laughs> shower every morning and go in the sea and that will you know, according to reports, take it away instantly, which obviously we know doesn't really work. It's more complex than that. So um, we can understand why. Model. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing about quick fixes is that the solution tends to be very short-lived as well. So quite often it is about this idea that it's a pattern, you know, and to change yes. a pattern, we, we don't just stop we don't just stop doing something overnight. Um, we we have to make that become the new habit, right? You know, it's not like if you go to the gym for one session, it's like, right, I'm fit now. You yeah, know, that's it. That's me done. <laughs> and I know this happens in other ways too. <laughs> yeah, I, I have friends who are physiotherapists and, you know, they'll talk about how some of their clients, they'll come to them, they'll do their exercises while they're in pain. And then as soon as the pain goes away, they'll stop doing all the stuff that makes made them feel yes. better. When yeah. just for I'm the sake sure of an extra would have actually bulletproofed them again. Yeah. There's something there around kind of preventative model. I, I do think that's quite important to talk about sometimes with the people that we work with. That You know, sometimes we may need some react. You know, we come to see a psychologist or a therapist or go to a physiotherapist because we've had something happen and we need, a, you know, kind of an acute intervention but it's also important to look at that kind of preventative model as well you know what can we learn from what we've been through what can we identify in terms of triggers maintaining factors as you say those helpers things that maybe aren't so helpful as well um i think that's really important for our listeners absolutely um, is that something we can expand on a little bit more so that kind of what is that preventative model how, how is that different from just responding in the moment to something you're noticing yeah. Yeah, and I, I think I think you're absolutely right. And a lot of the people that I see with um, depression, I tend to, you know, they, they don't often come back through for therapy again yeah. that often, and not because I'm a terrible therapist, um, more because we do, I do quite a lot on relapse prevention towards absolutely. the end. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. That is massively neglected in psychology, you know, because... If people people do a lot of really good work, they do a lot of hard work, they'll push that rock all the way up to the top of the mountain uphill to feel yeah. better. But then at the top, it, it, it's like, well, 
how do you stay like that? How you know? How do you um, how do you maintain this? Because if you think about the stages of change, the cycle of change, there is a maintenance phase. It's not just it's not just um, you know noticing the problem, um, you know thinking about doing something, planning, and then doing it. it. There's a maintenance stage, and the longer we can stay in that maintenance stage, the less likely we are to slip into those old patterns. That might be totally new as a concept for people listening. And I think actually, I'm not sure I've heard anybody talk about that recently in the media or books. Can you expand a little bit more on that? What might that look like for someone with depression, for example? Well, certainly during depression and during therapy, People, you know, they they learn skills. We we used to call them yeah. techniques, but but we've moved yeah. away from that now because the idea is that technique makes it sound like you you only have to do it once, or you only have to yes. do it when there's the problem, and then it goes away. You know, tap here fifty times and it'll go away. You know, but we refer to them as skills now because what we know about people is that we we like patterns. We fall into patterns. We do. Um, <laughs> Me yeah, changes, yeah, exactly. And some of them are helpful. Some of them are less helpful. And the idea is that we get good at what we practice. So the more we do something, the better, if you like, we become at it. So if we are practicing isolating ourselves, if we're practicing criticizing ourselves, if we're practicing thinking negatively or dwelling or ruminating, then we get very good at those. And I often say to clients, I bet if you'd have put yeah. all the time you've spent dwelling on this into learning piano, you'd probably be really good at piano by now, wouldn't you? And that they is also, such yeah. a great way of putting it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because we get good at what we practice, and this is the thing: it's hard to break those patterns because it's not just that we have to stop doing something, but it's that we have to build a new pattern too. So when people say that. They don't didn't do anything. When when people say what did, when you ask what did you do at the weekend, they say oh I did nothing. Right? Yeah. People are never doing nothing. It's like even if you're sat in a room staring at the wall, you're not doing nothing. You're sat there doing something. You're staring at the wall, and so it is with um, our behaviour. When we're not avoiding people, or when we're not isolating ourselves or when we're not thinking negatively, we have to be doing something else instead. Yes. So I often ask clients, right, if you're not doing that, because a lot of the times I'll ask them, you know, what would it look like if if things were fixed? And they they often say, well, I wouldn't feel depressed and I wouldn't be thinking negative. People are very, very very good at saying what they don't want. And that's a good starting point. But the idea is to focus on what, what what would be better. It's like... If you're not thinking negatively, what would you want to replace that with? Would you want to replace that with confidence? Would you want to replace that with enthusiasm? Would you want to replace that with with a hobby or an interest? So a part of it is about during therapy, people learn not only to challenge the negative thoughts and challenge the unhelpful behaviours, but it's also building the routine, building the habit of doing things that are more helpful. And when we get into that relapse prevention phase where people are feeling better, it's about, I often say to clients as well, that 80% at least of relapse prevention is about insight. 
that if you know mm. what you're doing that helps and you know what you do that sets you back, then it's kind of a no-brainer, right, on paper when it's logical and rational like that. But yeah. we, we don't do it. We still don't do it. So being able to do more of the things that help us feel better and less of the things that don't, it sounds so, so basic. And I sometimes think that we complicate it. Really does, yeah. It's like we, we like to think that there's this magic ethereal solution that no one's going to have thought of but in reality and you know i went to a conference a few years ago and they had a buddhist monk they had a pioneer in compassion focused therapy they had cbt therapists they had dancers talking and they were all they were all talking about different stuff but the themes were that happiness comes down to doing more of what makes you feel good and less of what doesn't and I think that's internal as well as external, the way we talk yes. to ourselves as well as what we do. I think that's a really important point because I think sometimes, again, when, when you read about depression in you know magazines, lifestyle magazines, social media, I still see that a lot of it is about you know behaviours you can see, that external stuff. And I think actually not enough emphasis, I'm really glad you brought that up, is placed on how we deal with what our brain's doing, how we talk to ourselves. And I really like your point as well. I think that will really resonate with people that – that we can get really good at knowing how to beat ourselves up and talk to ourselves in negative ways and being able to identify that and look at skills. And is that something people can do for themselves? Is that something they need professional help for? So if someone's brand new to thinking about this, how do you start to tackle and change yeah. those habits, especially that inner critic beating ourselves up? Yeah, I think that it's it, the first skill is always about noticing it, isn't it? It's like no matter what we doing if we're trying to break a habit if we don't notice when we're doing it then we're going to struggle and um i think those binoculars out and really looking we don't take time especially in this busy world i don't think do you how often do we press pause and go what am i doing what am i noticing yeah and um, i'm quite a big fan of um especially in the early stages using pen and paper yeah so me too i love a bit of pen and paper absolutely yeah so if any of my current or previous clients are listening they'll kind of know exactly that I um, often ask people to make notes about when they catch themselves thinking critically we all do it you're not going to catch every thought you know I have conversations like that four times a day with people and I still don't always catch it Um, but that's also good for people to know that psychologists we're still humans this isn't something you have to get right and get right all the time it's just beginning as part of being kind to yourself what can I catch let's just see yeah yeah and sometimes even after having the conversation with people they'll immediately say something that's self-critical and when I call them out on it when I pull them up on it they'll be like oh yes didn't notice that so even even being aware can make it quite hard but it's always a good place to start obviously in the absence of working with a therapist then noticing learning to notice when you're doing it is is a really good starting point yeah and i think as well because it's really important i think to name as well that in the current climate you know nhs waiting lists are super long not everyone has the means to see somebody privately to do this kind of work so the kind of part of this podcast is about how we can reach people and help them to start doing things for themselves um so i think that's really important can i ask you something about the the pen and paper so i'm thinking if anyone who's worked with me before or is at the moment will also probably be chuckling because i like an actual pen 
yeah. and as you can see an actual piece of paper I think there's a time for digital stuff I still find with my after 23 years of doing this people connect so much better when they have an actual pen and paper and they're writing yeah. stuff even more so than using a notes function on your phone <laughs> I don't know what your thoughts yeah. are on that yeah well there actually is research now uh, that people do return and people engage better when it is pen and paper yeah and I've not really explored the research in depth but my initial thoughts would be it's because you're actually having to make those symbols, you know. Yeah, I mean, purposeful left movement of that symbols, pen. You're literally writing it, right? Where yeah. versus pressing a key, which could be a P key, it could be an L key, it could be an A key. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. really matter. But when we're actually writing the symbols, we're we're thinking about it. We're you know we're doing something. So yeah, I always ask people to use pen and paper as well. I think it makes such a difference. And I'm thinking that's something that's accessible to everybody, you know, that obviously within the confounds of uh, privacy, because for every, not everybody may have the means to have bits of paper lying around with their personal thoughts on. And I always go through that with people that I work with. But you can do that right now. So anyone listening to this podcast who is thinking, actually, this might be me. There may be some depression here, but I don't know where to start. A really simple thing that they can do then, the kind of practical bit, is just to start to write down what you notice, what thoughts, how you behave. And when we talk about behavior, you mentioned this, you know, what do we do, but what don't we do? Sometimes we might stop doing things or do them differently as well as new things we might do. Um, and I think it's really important to, to make that distinction. Um, and in terms of kind of, we're not obviously able to offer therapy on a podcast, but how can people begin to make a next step once they start to notice some of those thinking patterns, start to notice maybe some of the things they're doing or doing differently? Mm. What might that next step be for people? Yeah, I suppose there's lots of different ideas. Um, once you have the actual thoughts written down or once you know your patterns, because it might be that you have many, 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 many different thoughts, yeah. but you might yeah. notice a theme. You might notice a theme. It's like, right, are all these thoughts, are they all self-critical? Am I beating myself up? Are all these thoughts, are they about what other people think of me? You know, yes. are all these yes. thoughts about how I'm performing at work? And that in itself, that, that can be really important because then what that says is it all boils down to one thing or two things yeah. rather than it being like yeah. 200 or 4,000 different thoughts. Yes. So, yeah. It's always a good. So I'm always really careful to help clients understand that what we do in therapy is reality. It's not based on us just telling people what they want to hear or yeah. just getting them to think positively because that's unhelpful. It's about looking at reality. And if the reality is that the things that you're thinking are true, then that's okay. We can go into problem solving mode, you know, and listeners at home can yeah. go into problem solving mode and actually say, right, actually, yeah, this is something I do need to deal with, you know. And it might be that yeah. they've been putting it off, you know, or it might just be that they've been just trying to solve it in a way that isn't really working. But yeah. things being bad or things being tough, that's difficult for most thinking things are bad yeah. or thinking that they're tough. And I have a phrase that I love using with people that it's about seeing things as they are, but not necessarily worse than they are. Yeah, I like that. And, and I think that, that this is something we become very, we put a lot of value and weight onto our thoughts, this idea mm -hmm. of if I think something, then that must be what's actually happening. Yeah. But so how much many power in some words. Yep. 
yeah, how many times have we thought something was going to happen and it didn't? And how many times have we thought something wasn't going to happen and it did, right? Yes, Our thought plan is actually very good in terms of interpreting reality. And and I've heard it put in lots of different ways, you know, that we don't experience reality. I mean, the old philosophers used to say that we don't experience yes. reality. We experience what we think is reality. Yeah, really good yeah. way of putting it. I think yeah. that will resonate with quite a lot of people as well, that... Um, I do a lot of acceptance and commitment therapy or it's otherwise known as ACT and I really love helping people to kind of just create a bit of space between what their brain is saying and how they're going to respond because sometimes we do have this well my brain's thought of it or sent me this it must be true and actually it's quite a big leap to go is it just add a question mark onto the end of some of those tricky thoughts and it can really help how you see and how you respond to them. Yeah absolutely because we tend to, we, we have so many thoughts a day, right? And the link really between different. thoughts and feelings or even thoughts, well, yeah, but the link between thoughts and feelings, we tend to think of it as being a bit like that. But if yes. you notice it, there's an actual gap. It's yeah. the link between thoughts and feelings. It's more, yeah. there's a little gap between the two. A really helpful and way if, of thinking of it. Yeah, if we're able to notice that gap and take a breath and a pause like you say it gives us a bit of a choice where we can evaluate actually yeah. is this what's happening or am I just falling back into that old pattern that my know my brain yeah. does so come back to that lovely formulation that we talked about or that picture at the beginning that's why that's helpful you know to mm. understand what's going on to catch it and then to do something about it yeah and I think we've got to remember as well obviously we're talking a lot about thoughts but when we look at behavior, the way we think is a behavior as well. You know, we tend, if we're self-critical, if we tend to be self-critical, then that's a behavior. You know, if we think the worst, that's a behavior. So when people talk about, you know, changing habits, I often do highlight that the way we think is a habit as well or can be a habit. And we need to take some time there. So everybody listening to this podcast, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you can start to create change by simply beginning to notice what's happening, try and cratch it and seeing whether you can create a little bit of what I call daylight, you know, noticing it and then what your response is or you want it to be. You mentioned earlier as well, do you want to try and get this in there, talking about gratitude and the role of mm -hmm. gratitude in helping with depression, helping with those tricky thoughts, tricky behaviours. Yeah, so gratitude, um, I think that that's something that's really missing nowadays. Like we mentioned earlier, it's based on the idea that we tend to stack experiences. Yeah. And yeah. if we stack, I mean, very broadly speaking, if we stack lots of negative experiences, then life can look pretty bleak. If we stack lots of positive experiences, life can look good. And like I said earlier, it's not about trying to convince yourself of something that isn't true. Yeah. And um, I, I do gratitude a little bit differently. I know a lot of people, they talk about using gratitude lists and stuff like that. Yes, yeah. I, I, tend, I tend not to um, not to do that because writing a list, it's still a very cognitive thing, whereas... Yeah. The experience of gratitude is quite an emotional experience. Yeah, so really I, I tend to um, do like visualizations with people where I have them relive experiences. Yes. And yeah. it might be about, you know, a kind of standard meditation, um, 
where you're bringing in, you know, think of a time that you think of a time you could feel truly grateful. Think of a time, give yourself yeah. the gift. Think of a time you were proud. Relive yeah. that. What could you see? What could you hear? And being able to stack some of those experiences, because the beauty of that is that it's not scraping the barrel. Everyone's got times in their life that they felt proud. Everyone's got times Absolutely. in their life they felt yeah. happy. Everyone's got times in their life they had fun and they had such a laugh that milk came out of their nose or whatever. Right? Everyone's <laughs> like got that. Yeah. experiences, no matter how yes. you know how how old they are. That everyone has experiences that they could feel truly grateful for if they allowed themselves to relive them. So. I tend to um, focus quite a lot on that with people, especially in those relapse prevention stages, because yes. when you when we refer back to us being negatively biased anyway, just through survival and evolution, we need to remind ourselves of those grateful experiences, of those moments we could feel proud, of those moments where we can feel Absolutely. happy. You know, uh, it's it's really important. Um, but and it's, it's not really accessible for people reliving them too yes yeah it's reality but i was thinking it's accessible for people everybody listening to this can do that i love the fact you do it in a guided way in a real experiential rather than just writing down a list as you say um that's stuff people can do you know whether yeah, you know, there's, lots of, um, there's lots of visualizations on youtube for it as well yeah. that are really yeah. helpful um but it's one of those areas, isn't it, where it's like, what can we learn about adversity and difficulty? Yes. And it's like, if we looked at other areas like PTSD, where we know that reliving is yeah. one of the symptoms and one of the things that causes the most distress, it's be because they're reliving that traumatic experience. But we don't yes. relive the grateful experiences. We don't relive the really good stuff that happens. You know, we're very much into a doing and a getting rid of society where you know right. right feel good don't need to think about that it's on to the next thing oh it's that like feel brain bad, trying to keep us safe yeah yeah it's one of the things that i'll take away from today we could almost do another episode of this because depression is such a huge thing to tackle isn't it but just the importance of what in psychology we call formulation then being able to understand what's going on being able to therefore catch it in situ as we would say so what am I noticing in my thought patterns what am I noticing in things that I might be doing visually um can I try and create a little bit of daylight a little bit of space between what my brain wants me to do and my actual response knowing that thoughts aren't facts that we can have a bit of control there um, and some very simple things, a pen and paper then. People can take that away from today, writing this stuff down. Gratitude. I think I need to do a little bit more of that, actually. It's very easy, isn't it, when someone, just thinking about the default how are you question from the beginning. It's so easy, isn't it, when people say how are things to maybe go into the, oh, this happened, that happened, and maybe not taking some time to think about the other things as well. What I'm really aware of is that people might be going, hmm, how do I get more of this chat then? People want to know more about you. Where can we find you? So people might already know from before, but anybody new that's listening, where do you hang out? How can people get more of you, Stuart? 
Yeah, so um, obviously, like you mentioned, there's the previous podcasts about um, sleep and anxiety. And uh, hopefully as well, if people do listen to all three, they'll see overlaps because, yes, you know, we don't, yeah. we don't have a separate brain for anxiety and a separate brain for depression. Good it's point. like these mechanisms all overlap. Yes, yeah. Um, so there's previous there's other podcasts as well. There's previous podcasts that we've done together. Um in terms of on the internet, um, our website, it's um, newcastlepsychologist.co.uk. And even though we're based in Newcastle, I do have a really thriving online therapy service as I well. I know, which is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I certainly see a lot of people online from um, all over the world, really. And um, yeah, in terms of emails, if you want to contact me directly, that can be at stuart at newcastlepsychologist.co.uk. So people can find you. Do you hang out on social media? Um, kind of. Um, I'm trying to reduce that because um, you know, a lot I think a lot of social media at the minute is really primed to activating a lot of that stuff that we've talked about today that's yeah. not always that helpful. But so social media, yeah. Well, um, we're on Facebook and Instagram as Newcastle Psychologist and Counseling, and on Instagram it's Newcastle.psychologist. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn as well, um, under my own name, Stuart Sadler. Um, so certainly people can get in touch in those ways. And I always ask everybody, and I know I've asked you before, if you were to leave us, you've given us loads of nuggets, but if there was one adversity takeaway that you could leave us with on depression or the triad, what would that be? So really huge question. Um, I would... I think it's it's two okay. Yeah. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we have two takeaways. Um, yeah, I say two because you know one is for the self and the other is for the others. But I would say for ourselves, um, awareness and insight are probably the most important things that you could yeah. start and finish with when it comes yeah. to depression. Absolutely. Um, yeah. If you have that insight and awareness about what you're thinking right now then yeah. that gives you that's a starting point that's a that's a diving board to choose what you do Brilliant. next um and the other thing is as well about seeking help because i know a lot of people they really yes. have a common belief i should be able to deal with it or yeah about that's other a really good point yeah and it is really hard to get out of depression if we're adding another level of shame onto it um, really good point. It's hard to feel shame if we feel able to talk about our truth, what's going on for us right now. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you put in two then, <laughs> um, because I think there's so many people. Again, you, you just mentioned um, earlier on, actually, you know, the whole I should be able to deal with this. You know, what might people think if I can't? And that can be, as you say, a huge barrier to people seeking help, mm. can't it? Stuart, thank you so much. Literally, I'm sure we have to do it another depression because there's so much stuff as well um that we haven't covered that maybe we'll bring in at a later date if you're happy to come back again um thank you so so much for coming back on i can't wait to get this episode out there um and hopefully we'll see you very soon yeah absolutely and um yeah hopefully see you soon 
Thank you for listening to the Adversity Psychologist podcast. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo and it's been lovely having you along to listen to this episode. If you want to find more about me, you can find me at drtara.co.uk so you'll see everything I'm up to, my media work, my collaborations, my clinical work if you're interested in that and of course all the other episodes of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. If you're interested in coming on, you can also contact me and let me know what you would like to come and talk about. I love to hear from you.